Welcome to Belfast City Vineyard, where we are pursuing formation in the presence of Jesus, community gathered around him, and the impact he empowers us to bring in our families, city, and the world. The following message was given at one of our Sunday services. For more information, visit our website at BelfastCityVineyard.com. Well, good morning and welcome. It is really good to be with you. My name's Andy. I am part of the team here at the Vineyard. I'm hoping you're having a really great summer so far. We're going to continue with Mark's Gospel this morning, and today we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 18 to 22, where Jesus is going to be questioned about fasting, and then he's going to tell the first parable recorded in the Gospel of Mark. It's worth noting that the section we're in and have been in the last couple of weeks is kind of chapter 2 all the way through to chapter 3, verse 6. And uh, those sections in the Gospel of Mark contain five different episodes of conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. And the conflicts begin to escalate until in chapter 3, verse 6, Mark tells us that the Pharisees begin to realize that this Jesus of Nazareth must be done away with, and they begin to start laying plans to do exactly that. And these different conflicts cover things like who can forgive sins, who has authority. They cover things like healing, who should eat, who should we eat and drink with. It covers things like the Sabbath and what we're going to look at today, fasting. And at the start of our series, we talked about how the Gospels, if, you, if you've read them before, the Gospels are not neutral documents. And Mark wants us to wrestle with who is Jesus. Mark wants to show us that he is the Son of God, and he wants us to wrestle with that. In the very beginning of the Gospel, the first verse, kind of the title, framing verse of the Gospel, says the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark just comes out swinging with who he believes Jesus is. And then the midpoint of the Gospel, he's asking the disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter replies, you are the Christ or the Messiah of God. And at the end of the gospel, in Mark chapter 15, verse 39, the centurion is, is there when Jesus dies on the cross and he proclaims him as the Son of God. The whole gospel, uh, we have people wrestling with, who is this Jesus and what is my response going to be to him? And as Jesus, in our passage today, answers the question about fasting, it's going to reveal some things about who he is and what our response should be to him. And you might be sitting here thinking, look, Andy, I'm just got to be honest with you, it's summer and I'm tired or I'm bored and I don't even know where my Bible is. I'm on summer break. Why are we going so deep with this? Or you might be saying, look, Andy, I'm not sure about Jesus. I'm not sure I'm following Jesus. What relevance does any of this have for me right now? Well, as Jesus answers a question about fasting, it does reveal some things about who he is and what our response should be. And maybe when we're tired and maybe when we're bored or we don't know where our Bible is or we're not sure about Jesus, we actually need to wrestle with who he is and how we might then respond. And it might be exactly what we need. And for those of us who are bored and disinterested, he does say some things about fasting that are gateways up out of boredom and apathy, that if we actually took seriously and took him seriously and put his words into practice, could be revolutionary in our lives. And if we're not following Jesus this morning or we're curious about him, his answers and what Mark says about him are worth considering 
deeply this summer, especially when he comes into conflict with the religious leaders, that he does claim to have authority to forgive sins, and how he pushes back on cold religious performance and embraces those who seem far from God, how he welcomes the broken, the lost, and the hurting, those who are looking for more, and he invites them to flourish under his rule and reign and gracious love. That's worth considering deeply on when we just are are caught with the question of what am I going to build my life on? And as we live in a world where things that once seemed permanent and unshakable are shaking and sometimes crumbling, we are all wrestling with what are we building our lives upon? What are we entrusting with our lives? And what if we consider Jesus and his claims as presented to us in the Gospel of Mark? What better question could we ask when we're bored or curious or apathetic this summer? So let's begin and see what Mark wants us to know and consider about Jesus. So our passage begins uh, with a question about fasting and begins in verse 18. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? So he's just in the verses previous to this. He's been questioned about eating with sinners. And now here comes questions about fasting. And it talks about John's disciples. Uh, This is John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, whom we met in chapter 1. John the Baptist is now in prison, but his followers are still around, and they are practicing fasting, as do the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are like this revivalist holiness movement within the Judaism of Jesus' day. And Literally, in the Hebrew, their name means holy ones or set-apart ones. And they were a movement dedicated to the keeping of Torah or God's law and commandments. And if you've ever read the Gospels before, you know that Jesus comes into conflict with Pharisees early and often. And interestingly, of all the different movements within Judaism of Jesus' day, uh, Jesus had the most in common with the Pharisees. They would have believed the same family of things. Uh, So he had most in common with them, but he also had the most conflict with them. Now the Pharisees weren't people who were careless or cavalier about the things of God. Uh, They were some of the most devout people around. And in the Jewish context of the day, fasting was a big part of a devout person's life. And the Pharisees actually fasted twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays, sun up to sun down. There were sun up to sun down fasts. And they fasted in repentance of sin. They fasted. One would might fast because of the death of a loved one. That you might fast in response to crisis or a tragedy. Uh, certain national festivals were preceded by fasting, but mostly, fasting became like the sign of piety and devotion to God and longing and lo- longing for more of God's presence, more of God's presence personally, more of God's presence for the nation. That God would send His Messiah, His Deliverer, and rescue the nation. That's what it was mostly about this longing for more of God personally and for the nation and that God would return to his people. So in verse 18, these questions that come Jesus' way and they're they're questions aimed at Jesus' followers, but the the target is really Jesus himself because he's their teacher. They're trying to get at Jesus. It's kind of a passive-aggressive question, but Jesus knows they're aiming right for him. And the questions come because Jesus is a teacher who is known for feasting, not fasting. And to have a teacher who did not fast at all and taught his followers to do exactly the same, that just didn't make sense in the Judaism of Jesus' day. That was completely unheard of. And 
you know, Jesus feasted. We, we see this in the Gospels. He feasted, and he feasted a lot. And he feasted usually with all the wrong people, right? Uh, with sinners and the ones who were considered far from God. And we see in Luke chapter 7, it, he was known for his partying. And he said, this is Jesus talking, For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man, this is Jesus talking to himself, came eating and drinking, and you say... He's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So that's what people were saying about Jesus. He was a glutton. He was a drunkard. He's crazy. He hangs out with tax collectors and sinners, the worst of the worst. And so Jesus was known for his partying. And then last week, Johnny talked to us about that, how Jesus welcomed anyone and everyone into his presence. And he would eat with them, especially those who seemed furthest from God that the religious leaders had written off those who are unclean and were seen to be beyond hope. And just as an aside, if you feel like unclean or beyond hope today, if that's how you feel about yourself today, Jesus wants to invite you to his feast. He welcomes you in. You should respond to his invitation today. And if you are a follower of Jesus, we all need to remember really clearly who Jesus welcomed to his table. And we need to think about who's invited to our table. Who's at our table? Is it the same kinds of people Jesus shared a table with? Those who were considered far from God? Or do we save our table for our people and our friends? Big questions this summer for us from the Gospel of Mark. Well, the questions, the root of the question for Jesus is how can this be right? Because for the religious leaders, you fasted to humble yourself because of sin, and you fasted in this longing that God would act soon and rescue his people who are held in bondage. Again, that God would come to be with his people again. And Jesus doesn't fast, and he teaches his disciples not to fast. How can this be? Well, here comes the bridegroom. Jesus does something next that he frequently does. Uh, and answers a question with a question, but not a question about fasting, about weddings. So he's asked a question about fasting, and he asks a question back about a wedding. Verses 19 and 20. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have, them, have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day, they will fast. So he answers them the question, how on earth could you fast when the bridegroom is around? So in other words, he's saying you'd never go to a wedding and fast. You would always feast to celebrate in complete joy that what has been longed for has now come. The bridegroom and the bride are united together before God and the people and the right response is a party and a feast. So Jesus is saying what you have been longing for is now here. I am the bridegroom. God's greatest gift is here. What you've been fasting for, crying out for, longing for is here. And I, the bridegroom, am with my attendants, my disciples. So why would they fast? Now is the time. Now is the time of God's great salvation. And it is found in and through relationship with me. He's saying, be close to me like the attendants to the bridegroom. And Jesus calling himself the bridegroom would have been really provocative and would have ratcheted up the tension with the religious leaders. Why is that? Well, if you go back into the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, one of the themes there is 
the bridegroom or the husband of the people of God. And the bridegroom or the husband of the people of God in the Old Testament is God himself. See this in many different places, but in Isaiah 54 verse 5, it's really, really clear. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. This was a rich Old Testament theme that God himself was like a husband to the nation of Israel. So this is on the lips of Jesus. It's hugely provocative. And in Mark's gospel, we're only two chapters in, but he is driving this question forward. He is constantly holding it up into our faces. Who is Jesus? And he wants us to see that this Jesus truly is the Son of God. He is the bridegroom. He's with the people now. He is inviting them to find life in and through him, to be united with him in faith forever, in covenant love and mercy. God himself has dwelt among men in Jesus. The bridegroom is here. And if the disciples of John and the Pharisees truly understood who Jesus was, they would not fast either. But in verse 20, Jesus then says, the time will come when the bridegroom is taken from them and then they will fast. So the word for when it says taken there, the word literally means snatched or seized away. It's, it's actually a really shocking picture because he's introduced this wedding celebration, but then like picture you go to a wedding and we've had the ceremony and right then we sit down for the tea, but before the tea is the speeches. And so we've all got our best clothes on and the bridal party's there and the, the bridegroom gets up to give his speech and the authorities rush in and they arrest him and take him away. So that's kind of like the picture Jesus is giving us here. And it's, he's referring to his arrest, his suffering, his death, and then his resurrection and his return to the Father. Now, we've talked a lot uh, already in this series about how Mark's original audience, the first readers and hearers of this gospel, were Christians in Rome who were undergoing severe persecution. And so they knew what it was like to have friends and family taken away, snatched away, and, and martyred. And that would have com- this would have comforted them that even Jesus endures that. That was part of Jesus' story. They would have reflected on this very gospel, these very words. They would have seen the silence of God descend upon Jesus as he dies on the cross. And they would have had to reflect on this and consider that they too might need to face times when God seems silent or far away. And this teaching of Jesus, how the bridegroom being taken from them and then they will fast, would have been like a roadmap through their own suffering and persecution. They will be fasting as they wonder, where God, where are you in my suffering, in my persecution? As they felt abandoned by him, they could have reflected on this and the story of Jesus and used fasting as a gateway. As Jesus says, when the bridegroom is taken, then they will fast. Well, what about for us? All of us are going to have seasons where we feel far from God. We're going to have seasons that are difficult. Some of us will even face persecution. And what if fasting is a response for that to, for us as well? Now, it's really important to say that the early church passionately believed that they were in Christ and that Jesus was present with them by his spirit. They weren't abandoned at all. And we passionately believe the same thing. But yet the early church and the church through the ages still has maintained this pattern of fasting. And Jesus said, when the bridegroom is taken, then they will fast. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, not if you fast, he says, 
when you fast. So, well, why do we fast then? So fasting is a sign that we aren't yet fully in our true home. Earlier in Mark chapter 1, Jesus announced that the kingdom is now available in and through him. But we also know that we live in the tension of the kingdom of God being already here as announced and inaugurated by Jesus, but not yet here in fullness when, as it will be when Jesus returns for his people. So right now we live between the times. We live in this place of tension. So we carry joy for all that he has done for us and how he is present to us right now by his spirit. And so at times we feast. And we celebrate and we live in that kind of already reality. But we also carry, at the very same time, this deep longing and hunger for the consummation of all things, the full redemption of the people of God and of all the earth. And out of that longing for more, longing for more of the presence of God, the new Eden, we fast. We also fast because we long for more personally. We look at our lives and the tension of not living in a fully healed world and the brokenness that is in us and on us and around us and has affected us and we long for his presence and his transformation now. And you don't even need to be a follower of Jesus to know that when our soul is in that place of longing for more or mourning or grief, we fast. And when our soul is celebrating, we feast. Those of you who have been around grief and loss and long-term disappointment know that what happens to you you lose your appetite. You don't want to eat anymore when you're going through grief and loss. It's because nothing will satisfy your heart. You've lost the presence of something or someone and your heart broken and you aren't able to be satisfied by anything else. But listen to me. If you don't hear anything else from this talk, hear this. How does our world, you know, the water we swim in, the culture around us, the air we breathe, how does the culture around us deal with loss and grief, and especially that deep longing for more, for transcendence and transformation. What does it tempt us to do and tell us to do in its place? It tells us to consume. It tells us to drown our sorrows. It, tr it says, give in to distraction, uh, chase things, consume things, consume content, consume pornography, consume social media, consume food, sex, the endless quest of self-improvement outside of Jesus, consume power and chase power and prestige and influence, consume, consume things and consume people if necessary on your quest for more and the longings in your soul. When faced with the longing for eternity and goodness and the more, that's in every one of our hearts, the world says, consume and acquire. Well, Jesus stands alone and says to us, no, you fast. Not to earn anything, but to point our longings towards the only thing that can satisfy them, himself. And away from things that destroy us and others, this endless consumption to try and fill what only God can give and satisfy. Jesus says, don't consume Place it all on me and fast. Will you think about that? So for followers of Jesus, would you think about, am I trying to consume my way out of a deep longing for more? And if you aren't a follower of Jesus, will you consider that Jesus knows that you do have deep griefs and deep longings for more, deep desires for more that you can't always explain. And Jesus invites you not to consume your way out of it and just try and fill the emptiness in your heart with more and more stuff and things, but to place all of your hope and longing and faith onto him. Will you consider that 
deeply this summer. Well, let's talk about wedding clothes and wine for toasting the bride and groom. And so in what seems like a really radical gear shift, Jesus gives us the first recorded parables in Mark's gospel, and that's verses 21 and 22, the really short little parables or sayings. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Well, what on earth is happening here? Well, he says tearing a patch from a new garment and sewing it on the old, uh, it, it, it ruins both garments. Right? Because the old fabric can't flex, but the new fabric can, so it'll tear, and it just wrecks everything. And then he talks about wine, and new wine can't go in old wineskins, because the old wineskins have already stretched out, and they can't stretch anymore, and the new wine is going to ferment and expand, and it's going to burst the, wine, the old wineskins and destroy them. New wine needs new wineskins to hold it. So what connection to clothes and wine have to do with the wedding language that Jesus was just using? Well, even in our day, clothes and wine are wedding themes, right? New clothes for the wedding and, new, and wine for the feasting at the wedding. But Jesus is saying a whole lot more than just trying to link things up to weddings. He's saying that God is doing something new in this moment, something that completely fulfills what he promised he would do for his people and the world. But it isn't just a continuation of an old idea, it's new. And Jesus, again, Jesus' announcement that the kingdom is now available in and through him, he's saying it's new. It can't be added on. God's doing a new thing. You can't just bolt this onto your life and keep going in the old ways that you were. It's something that needs to be totally embraced in its fullness. And it fulfills all that's been promised, but it's also different and requires a different response. Everything that's gone before, Jesus is saying, everything that's gone before has been actually been preparation for the bridegroom. But now the bridegroom is here. And he's saying, it's going to be a new thing. And he was inviting them to embrace him as God's answer to their questions. The fulfillment of hope. He was inviting them to receive him as Savior. To submit to him in his kingdom of love and mercy and righteousness. And the same thing is put to us today. Jesus isn't just a patch you can sew onto your life or your worldview. He's not like an add-on because he will actually break it. We can't just kind of add a little Jesus and keep going. We will be put into severe tension that way. He must be fully embraced and surrendered to, and we can only thrive in his kingdom when we fully enter his kingdom in faith in him. And I I just want to say, are we doing that today? Will we do that today? Why does he begin to talk about this new old thing right off the back of this question about fasting? Well, I think the whole context is about fasting. And Jesus is saying one of the things that will contain this new thing that God is doing is actually fasting. Uh, Fasting doesn't earn a new thing, but it can receive a new thing. It doesn't earn a new thing, but it can receive a new thing. See, there's this unmistakable biblical theme. If you go from start to finish, whenever you see people fasting, you often see God then doing something new. When you see people on a big fast, you then see God pour out something that reaches beyond them for further generations. So you see it in the life of Moses. Moses fasts for 40 days and God gives him the Ten Commandments. So fasting precedes it and the Ten Commandments come and they are blessing for generations beyond Moses. And like fasting kind of prepares the 
us to receive it. Elijah goes on a fast in 1 Kings 19 and by the end of it he meets with God and he's given this assignment to anoint the next generation of leadership that is going to bless and lead the nation. Jesus in the Gospels fasts for 40 days and immediately after begins to preach and teach and he proclaims the ushering in of the kingdom of God, that his rule and reign and presence is breaking in in a new way and we still are running with that new wine that was poured out then off the back of fasting. So something about fasting precedes new things from God and preserves them beyond us. They can, they can last and they can impact later generations with great blessing. So what new thing might God do and pour out as over the course of your life you prioritize his presence, including practicing fasting? Not fasting to earn things from him, but as a way to renew our focus on him to prepare ourselves to receive what he wants to do. Wouldn't that be a really different way of thinking about coming up out of what's happened to us with the pandemic? Letting fasting focus us Focus our devotion and attention upon Jesus and allow Him then to give us what we need that will then overflow from our lives in, and cause blessing in the lives of others. See, fasting doesn't earn us a new thing, but it can receive a new thing. And instead of maybe uh, retreating and holding back and licking our wounds from the pandemic, what if we entered a period of discernment that included fasting? And we were preparing for the new things, the new goodness that God will pour out into our lives, into our church, into our city. And what if fasting led the way and prepared us for that? And what if there was a blessing in it that was going to cascade through generations? Well, as we wrap up, here's just a few quick things to consider as we talk about fasting. Uh, we have a fasting guide as BCV that kind of answers some do's and don'ts and some more extended things about fasting than I have time for now. And so in our Tuesday weekly email, it's going to be there. You can just click on the link and you can download it and have it for yourself if you want to go further with fasting. If you don't get our BCV weekly emails, email info at belfastcityvineyard.com and we'll be delighted to make sure you have it. Um, you know, there's just going to be, there's loads of do's and don'ts in there and some health warnings. You know, if you shouldn't fast from food for a medical condition or any other reason, then don't do that. Um, I th have just felt led as I was preparing this talk that actually most of us might not want to consider fasting from food. Most of us might want to consider fasting from our phones or our screens or social media. Uh, one of the things about fasting is don't give up something without embracing or longing for something else. It's not just, you know, designed as torture to punish yourself. Um, it's a cultivation of a desire for more of Jesus and laying our affections on Him. So we remove something from our lives, but we embrace something in our lives, which is this longing and, and focus on Him. And start slow. Be kind to yourself. Don't take on a 40-day fast if it's the first time you're fasting. Maybe try fasting for a morning or an afternoon or for one meal. Start slow, okay? Don't be a hero. Um, you should expect it to be hard. You should expect opposition from the enemy for a lot of the reasons I just said. Fasting often precedes, precedes a new thing from God. I don't think the enemy wants that in your life or in the life of our church. So expect it to be hard. Expect to need to push through. You should expect to be distracted. You should expect to be invited out to the nicest meal you've ever been as soon as you make the decision to fast. You know, it's kind of just how the enemy works. You should also remember that fasting doesn't earn us anything, and fasting definitely doesn't save us. 
Jesus saves us. When you simply trust and rest on the, in the person of Jesus and his work on the cross, rather than on your own activity, God embraces you by grace through faith and declares you to be his son or daughter. Fasting or any other spiritual discipline doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. You can't earn anything. Salvation is by grace through faith. But fasting does allow us to focus our attention on Jesus the Savior and to pour our longings onto him. And it does train us in that preferring him and preferring worship of him rather than being distracted and satiated with the things the world has to offer. Two other things very quickly uh, that I thought were relevant. In the Bible, one of the biggest reasons people fast is response to their own sin. So if you know of one area in your life or lots of areas of your life where you need to return to Jesus, you have been away and maybe there's just brokenness there, wrong turns, uh, you might want to think about fasting, not to pay for your sins, but to focus on the Savior of your sins, the Savior who eats with sinners and throws feasts for them when they come home. So it's time to let fasting be the gateway to return to Jesus. The second thing is clarity. When we we don't fast to get him to do stuff for us, it's not like a magic trick that if we fast he has to give us stuff or to do stuff for us, but as we fast and dedicate time to him and his presence, we should expect to hear from him. We should expect to be in his presence and receive from him. And clarity is one of the things that often comes when we fast. Clarity through the reading of God's word. When I fast, God's word is often much, much clearer to me than it is when I don't fast. And I just want us to think about that for a brief second. Us as a church, we have a really interesting autumn ahead of us. We're going to be on the move. There's renovations to our building. And then after the autumn, there's going to be a big new season where our building's done and we're occupying it well and truly. And there's, you know, big questions there. And we are going to need clarity on what is God doing and what should we do with the blessing and resources he has given us. We're going to need clarity on that. So we are going to probably do some fasting about that. And fasting should be a big part of that because we need clarity. As I said earlier, we're coming up out of the pandemic and lots of us are wrestling with the questions of what's going on? What is life about? What is my life about? What are the next month, year, two years about? We're all wrestling with those questions. And don't you think fasting that bleeds to clarity might be helpful there? And if you're not a Christian, you're like, fasting, are you serious? Would I really do that? Well, I think anybody, whether you're following Jesus or not, knows the feeling of, I have got to get this thing out of my life. A distraction, something clouding my judgment or taking me away from my life goals. We've all had that emotion like, I have got to stop this or that. or I've got to cut that out of my life. And that is starting to get into the realm of the language of Jesus. And what if Jesus has wisdom here? What if Jesus has, has wisdom here? And what if the fasting idea and language of Jesus is right? And what if he is right about fasting? Does that mean he might be right about other things, like how he is the answer to our questions and our heart's desire. Would you think about that as you consider fasting? Well, I just want to pray for us quickly before we close. Uh, Lord, would you bless us? Would your Holy Spirit fall on us? And for those who want to be attendants of the bridegroom, would your Spirit fall on us now? And would you lead us towards a hunger like we've never known for worship, for the scriptures, for your presence, for your power? Lord, we want to be near you. Help us draw near to you. We want to be devoted to you. 
Lord, lots of us need clarity, Lord. And as we consider fasting and more time with you, would you give clarity for our whole church? Would you give clarity for us as individuals, Lord? Would you also help us prepare for the new things you're doing in our lives, the new things you're doing in our church, and pour out your Spirit as we even consider fasting as a, as a, as a preparation for the new things you want to do. Lord, I pray, even though it's summer and lots of us are on holiday, We thank you for your good things, but would you stir us? Would you cause the divine hunger to grow in us? And would you mature us and unite us as a church? Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. For all the latest information about what's happening in the life of our church, or if you have any questions or comments, head over to BelfastCityVineyard.com.